This is Channel 253. The Citizen Tacoma podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Candice Rood, and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. I'm Candice. I'm Doug. And we are the Citizen Tacoma podcast, informing an empowered electorate. I thought we were empowering an informed electorate. In in the the city city of destiny. Hi, Candace. Hi, Doug. Do I sound completely sober? <laughs> Do I? <laughs> I think we pretty much. That was just one beer. Yeah, it was just, just one beer. beer. And the, co- the cookie cut it a little bit. There you go. Uh, so today we talked to Sean Robinson, uh, who was at the News Tribune for like almost 20 years, about uh, kind of a reporter's notebook dump. It's kind of a two-parter because the first part is heavy, and then it expands from there. Yeah. So. Enjoy. All right. Welcome. We're here with Sean Robinson. Hi there. Longtime News Tribune reporter. Yes. How how long were you at the News Tribune, Sean? Started there in June of 2000. And you recently separated from the paper. Yes, I did. And uh, what? Uh, well, first, tell us what you're drinking. I am drinking, uh, courtesy of Candace, uh, Winta Brewing Lime Pilsner. Yeah, it's U-I-N-T-A. I've never heard of this one before. I haven't either. But I'll try anything once. <laughs> what are you drinking, Doug? It's a prefream. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys know something I don't know? Freem? Is it just freem? I would guess freem. Okay, but so I don't the know. p is the p is silent. It's a freem uh, pilsner from Hood River, Oregon. I am I, I I too am rebelling against the the hop revolution. Yeah. Too much IPA out there. You cannot have a variety pack of beer that is all variations of IPA. Even if they don't say IPA, they're IPAs. It's true. It's, yeah, even the non-IPAs are really hoppy now. Mm. Yeah. Mm. As an IPA drinker, I am drinking the Hub's Ferocious Citrus IPA. I do like IPAs, but I do agree uh, that there's just too much of them everywhere. You can't get anything that's not an IPA. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Like, Anywhere. Even when I was in California visiting my parents, I thought it was a Pacific Northwest thing, but it was all IPA or double IPA all the time. I think it's because it's easier to brew. Mm. It is. That could it's be It's true. It. And like when it has such a, like an intense flavor, like you can hardly fuck it up because it's, whoa! Yes. It just destroys yes. your taste buds right off the bat. Right. <laughs> anyway, so we're here today with Sean, who recently left the News Tribune. Um, tell us about your decision to leave. Uh, it was not easy. Um, it was painful to me. Uh, the people there who I still love did not want me to go. Uh, but the opportunity came up and it was a succession of things, partly a lot of people leaving, including you, including a lot of other people and those chairs just not getting filled. Um, Karen Peterson, the executive editor who I was close with, left a couple of years ago. Kim Bradford, wonderful uh, second-level editor, left, and I I really enjoyed working with her. Uh, And then um, in January, I might get sentimental here, so forgive me, but our longtime editor, Randy McCarthy, died unexpectedly um, and suddenly, and that was really grim and... uh, 
we went to a memorial service that uh, his wife Lisa arranged at the LeMay Car Museum, and there were so many people there, just, you know, like 300 people. And in some ways, it felt like um, a memorial for the paper, mm. not just him. Uh, and he'd done so much. He, uh, he, he was so wonderful to work with, such a cheerful guy. I had to write his obit. Right. That was a beautiful story. Oh, thank you. Um, and that was hard. That was one of the hardest things I've ever had to write, just you know, trying to, to stay straight and be true to what that guy was. But when he left, uh, it, it, it was just kind of – I was there with my wife and um, the day after that memorial service, they announced – the buyouts, right. company wide, and it's for fifty and over folks, or uh, fifty-five. 55. So I'm older than people think I am. I thought you were forty-five. <laughs> uh, and I came in just under that wire, um, and it was just, you know, it 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 felt like a a bit of a flat bicycle tire. I don't know how else to put it. Um, it's not that I don't want to do journalism anymore because right. I still do and uh, I'm working on that but uh, it did not feel like a place where I could continue to do it right yeah you sat I mean you sat right next to Randy too you guys were very very close and he was your editor for the entire time you were at the TNT almost mm -hmm. um, when I first came there I was um, I was a temp and uh, I was assigned to a story that almost everybody there at one time or another had to cover, which was the Puyallup Fair. And uh, at that time, we had, I think, 47 or 48 news reporters wow. in the room. And now, uh, by comparison, there's like maybe a dozen, depending on how you count them. So it's just been draconian. Uh, but the Puyallup Fair story at that time, we had zoned editions. We had... You know, an East Pierce County edition. We had a South King County edition. We had bureaus. It was incredible. Uh, so I was working in one of the bureaus, and they wanted a story a day from the Puyallup Fair. So I had to <laughs> come up with shit. And um, my favorite one at that time was uh, I spent the entire night there. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, stayed. Like overnight? And, overnight. Oh, wow. Overnight at the fair. It was very eerie and fun. It, it was kind of like... You go down um, the midway area where all the games are and suddenly it's like, you know, Joker paradise and it's very freaky and weird mm -hmm. and all these security guards looking for people hiding out. It was fun. What did you do all night? Uh, first walked around with security, um, had each of them tell me what they were doing, uh, just kind of strolled through the dark and the silence and there's a lot of cleaning up going on mm -hmm. because everybody's been there all day. Uh, dumping their popcorn or whatever it is. Um, and then as the night wears on and you get to like three and four o'clock in the morning, uh, the people who uh, make all the food start trickling in, trickling in, and it starts to bubble and bustle and you start smelling scones and music starts playing and uh, the thing just kind of gears up. It's this, you know, machine. Right. Um, so, like a wind-up, one of those wind-up music boxes. Yes. I remember the soundtrack that they were playing at that time was um, Britney Spears. Oops, I did it again. Oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long-ass time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the fair ended in 
fall of 2000 and uh, I got uh, hired on permanently around that time and then really shifted into crime and criminal justice and investigations in December of 2001 when they arrested the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. And because I've lived here all my life and I'm, you know, roughly contemporary with those murders, I had graduated from high school as they started and, you know, they were like, he, he was, you know, the bogeyman. He was Freddy Krueger. Nobody knew who he was and um, they'd been searching for him for two decades. So when, when I heard of the arrest and this was just, I was listening to the radio and driving home in the rain and it's like, okay, fucking A, turn around. You turn right now back to the newsroom. Um, and that started uh, kind of my investigative arc. Right, which included covering the David Brame situation. That was another one. Um, that happened in a, a whirlwind series of events from from a Friday through a Saturday. So there's a lot of lingering sort of misinformation about this, so maybe it's worth talking about. Yeah. Um, he had, Brame had been appointed chief in um, early 2002, and he succeeded a guy um, who was uh, sort of a caretaker named James Hairston, who was only there because he had replaced someone hated by the entire police department named Philip Ariola, who had, uh, you know, very controversial figure. So Brame was a hometown guy who rose up through the ranks and had been a union negotiator. He was very cool. He was a very passive aggressive guy, uh, kind of blonde and square jawed and soft spoken. And at the time, everyone thought, okay, this guy will be good. He's, you know, 42 or whatever, young. And um, what nobody knew is that his marriage was collapsing because he was a freak. He was an abuser. Um, he was a controller. He weighed his wife on a scale. Jesus. He checked her odometer. Wow. Um, and she was, um, she'd been an ice skater. She was very... She was really pretty. Uh, Crystal Judson is her name. Mm. Uh, and, she, you know, her name is on the, the Crystal Judson Center, obviously. Uh, b- but he had been doing all these things, uh, including trying to lure her into a three-way with another female officer who he um, was attracted to. Mm. And he was manip- manipulating both of them, telling the officer, oh, my wife is really into this. Uh, telling uh, Crystal, oh, this officer's really into this. I really, really want you to do it. Um, and I know this is, you know, fairly sorted stuff, but uh, Brame at one point uh, had been invited by another co-worker, who I'm not going to name, to a club um, in Redmond, known as New Horizons, which was a swingers club. Mm. And a lot of prominent law enforcement people went there. Uh, so Brame had this idea for this encounter, uh, which was never realized. Um, that they would go there? and Well, not, that's not so clear, mm-hmm. uh, whether they would go there, whether he would just arrange it somehow. Um, 
So she becomes tired of his controlling behavior, and she files for divorce. But she doesn't want publicity. This is early months of 2003. And she files for divorce in King County, um, which was a deliberate strategy to avoid scrutiny. Uh, If you think back, this is 16 years ago now, um, the online records, documents, everything fledgling. You couldn't just get at it instantly mm-hmm. like you can now, like we're all accustomed to and we've, we've all just become used to, oh, that's just normal. It wasn't normal then. You had to drive to the courthouse. Right. You had to go and get stuff. So um, we became aware of this divorce file that included all of Crystal's allegations of domestic violence and him, you know, pointing a gun at her and and, and just being really abusive, not really, um, you know, beating her up, but uh, just really psychologically abusive. Mm -hmm. And like he would get into a fight with her and then the next day she'd receive flowers from a stranger. Mm. And and she'd be like, did you send these? I don't know what you're talking about. Who is this stranger who's sending you flowers? Good God. So nasty. Anyway, she files for divorce. She has these allegations in it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Um, We became aware of them, and this is the controversial part, because at the time there were some allegations that we, as in the newsroom, sat on this story too long. Um, It's debatable, but this is what the, the thinking was at the time. We could not get her on the record. We couldn't get her to talk. She wouldn't answer calls from reporters. Now, I wasn't doing this part of the reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, I was still just a, a Sunday through Thursday crime reporter doing occasional big things, but I was not in on this yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I learned this stuff after the fact. Um, we try to call her. She won't respond. We try to call him. He won't respond. And there's a feeling that, well, we can't just write this yeah. without them having some kind of response. It's, Absolutely. It's pretty salacious stuff. Yeah, you don't do that. <laughs> no. Um, so a blogger um, who is now dead named John Hathaway. Do you know this name? Uh, he He ran a site called uh, The New Tacoma, and spelled uh, T-A-K-H-O-M-A-N. Uh. And he was a, a character of sorts. He was... Um, a drinker, uh, and he was a gossip monger and kind of a, a cartoonist of sorts, and he had a lot of cop sources. Mm. So one day in the middle of the week, probably April 21st or 22nd of 2003, he gets a copy of the divorce file in his mailbox in a blank envelope. He doesn't know who's given it to him. At least that's what he always said. And he publishes. Jesus. And sends it to all of the uh, email accounts of all the Tacoma leaders and city officials, everybody. Doesn't make any phone calls or no, anything. No, no. It's out there. Um, it's circulating in the, in the, in the fringes. Mm-hmm. So everybody knows, but nobody's talking. Uh, we are trying to get someone to comment. And then we learn that uh, the Seattle P.I., is also aware of it. And so, you know, the tension heats up. Okay, we got to do something. We got to do something. Then on Friday, April 25th of 2003, 
we run a very brief story that outlines some of the allegations, and we talk to the city manager, uh, Ray Corpus, who says, I'm not suspending him. It's a personal matter. It's a civil matter. Um, you know, we'll, we'll work it out. Now, all this time, Brain was in Las Vegas at some police conference. I don't know why all the police conferences are in Las Vegas. <laughs> I can um, guess. <laughs> um, and he, although we don't know this yet, this was something that we found out later uh, where I did a lot of work with uh, another reporter named Martha Modine, who was a, you know, just a standout reporter, one of the best people I've ever worked with. But there's a lot of back and forth about how Brame is letting all of his colleagues at the police department in on what's happening, except he's saying, my wife's crazy, mm. uh, she's nuts, she's psychotic, she abused me, he had pictures of a bruise on his arm that he said she'd inflicted, and he's telling everybody, his assistant chiefs, everybody, it's her, it's her, it's her, and there's this internal quandary, nobody knows this until later, about what do we do, what do we do? Um, like with city management? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's the classic thing where uh, it's a common, common thing in public sector entities for there to be employees who are having this or that personal problem issue that might be pretty dire. Mm -hmm. But they're usually not the boss. Right. And because he's at the top of the food chain and has the power of hiring and firing and promoting and not promoting and was known to use it ruthlessly against people who did not support him, there was a lot of fear. So the only person who could do anything about it was the city manager who instinctively thought, this is a divorce. I'm not going to deal with a divorce. I'm not going to go too hard on this. And, you know, people obviously felt that was a very bad decision in hindsight. Um, so we run a little story uh, on Friday saying, you know, Brame's not going to be suspended. And the editorial page editor who knew Brame mm. calls him up and says, you know, we're going to be publishing an editorial tomorrow about this that suggests maybe you should, you know, take some time off and, and work out your issues. Uh, if you could call me, blah, blah, blah. Well, he didn't call. And so it's Saturday morning. And by this time, they've separated. And the kids are being shuttled back and forth between them. He has his own apartment just on this side of the Narrows Bridge. She still lives in Gig Harbor. And it's his weekend with the kids. So he's got them. And there's uh, uh, the little boy and the little girl. They're three and they're five. He's got them in his car. Uh, and he's going shopping, uh, and he goes to the places he knows. He goes over the bridge into Gig Harbor where he's always shopped, and he's getting bubble bath and, and little toy stuff for these children. And Crystal, who has been telling all of her friends about this sort of ordeal of abuse and, and uh, uh, destructive behavior by her husband, is... By a coincidence, I have never understood behind him on the bridge. Oh, Jesus. She sees his car and she is on the phone at the same time with her mother uh, saying, I think I see David. I think I see David. And she follows him. He pulls into um, a parking lot in this little shopping center. 
she pulls into another parking space just a, a, a few spaces away, and she goes and talks to him. And somehow, this part was reconstructed and it's not fully understood. He's sitting in her car and she's standing over the, the driver's side door uh, and he abruptly pulls her head down, shoots her in the head. She falls. He shoots himself in the head, falls into the back of the, you know, into the, into the second seat. And he's gone within hours. And she lasts a week. Good God. And the children see it. And they were in his car. They, they rush towards her. Oh my God. Uh, just so painful. Um, from the news side of it, uh, it's an all hands on deck moment. So everybody comes in except me because I'm the Sunday guy. <laughs> and the, the thinking from the planning point of the newsroom, Randy McCarthy and these other people is uh, everybody else come in. We'll handle all the breaking stuff. Um, and Sean comes in the next day and deals with the next stuff. Right. So that first day was just insane. And you can imagine that it wasn't just us. It was every news outlet in the region and nationals start coming in too. So I had to come in the following day. And what I was told to do was find a woman who said that Brame had raped her at gunpoint in 1987, wow. 16 years earlier, and that that um, incident had been papered over and he had become chief in spite of internal police admin knowledge of it. Jesus. Had she filed charges at some point? No. No. And I, I think I had a name that was not quite correct uh, and maybe one contact. And uh, this is dim in my memory now. I don't know how I did it, but I found her. Uh. Um, and it's reporting folks <laughs> <laughs> driving around uh calling people frantically finally found her she had a little house in the in the ups area not far from where we are right now actually and david zeke who was still the executive editor at that time and not the publisher and and you know absolutely a kick-ass journalist mm -hmm. who did not lose his cool um under stress. He knew what to do. So it was a mercy. And he helps me write this story about this alleged rape that was investigated by police internal affairs and determined to be not sustained because it was a he said, she said incident because it was 1987. How did they know each other if you recall? He was not married then. He was a, a, a young recruit and she was just in those circles and they, they both knew some of the same people. So they went on a date. Mm -hmm. um, and she said later that he, you know, raped her and, and held her at gunpoint while he did it because it got him off. Mm -hmm. uh, and she did report it to um, internal affairs and they did investigate, but they, you know, he denied it he said rough sex not rape again 1987 right might have turned out differently today yes absolutely right so that incident 
Um, and the aftermath led to two years of coverage, um, all kinds of stuff, not just me, although I did a lot of it. Um, but, uh, reporters like Chris Sherman, Lisa Kramer, Randy McCarthy's wife, um, Martha, who I worked with, um, everybody just doing stuff. And there were changes that were made in the police department. And there was of course a gigantic lawsuit. Uh, it led to a $12.5 million settlement, uh, that the city paid. And part of the agreement was the creation of the Crystal Judson Justice Center. Paid to the family? Yes. Right. Paid to the, the way it worked was that uh, Crystal's parents, who, who her father especially was, was and is, I haven't talked to him for a long time, so I don't know his status right now, became a huge advocate right. for domestic violence awareness. Um, and Crystal's sister and her husband became the parents of the children um, and uh, raised them. And obviously we're... 16 years away from that, so they're grown up. Right. Uh, but that was an amazing story. Right. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after we slurp down our beers. Yes. <laughs> this is Nate Bowling, host of the Nerd Farmer podcast on the Channel 253 Network. I fly a lot. And when I fly, I want to actually enjoy my time in the air. So I'm looking for two things. One, being treated like a human being and two, an amazing mileage plan. And for those two things, the only game around is Alaska Airlines. The flight attendants are courteous, the service is efficient, and when I fly with Alaska, I feel like a human, like a customer, not a commodity. And the mileage plan, I get rewarded for the miles that I fly, which means that flying across the country really racks up the miles. So the next time you're looking to fly from SeaTac, skip the travel sites. Just head to alaskaair.com, book your ticket. You'll thank me. I'm Nate Bowling, Alaska Airlines MVP Gold, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. You are listening to Citizen Tacoma on the Channel 253 Network. We are here with Sean Robinson. We are here today, thankful for our members who, if for a mere sum of $4 a month or $40 a year, you can become a member. You can get all sorts of cool stuff like newsletters and early tickets to adult civics happy hour events. So go to channel253.com and go to the membership tab. Four bucks, that's probably about what this cookie cost, I imagine, that you got here at the Met Market. I think, yeah, I think they're a little under four bucks. So we got got cookies from Met Market. Yeah, so what I have here is a chocolate chip cookie, which instead I'm going to call a chocolate chip cookie. Because the cookie part of it is just an excuse to bind together this much chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) They call it the cookie. The cookie. It even comes with its own fancy bag. Like we have a branded bag for the cookie. All right. Let's talk about our beers. What do you think, Sean? I am enjoying this winter lime pilsner. It is uh, giving me warmth and tang at the same time. That sounds like a good combo. Mm. It's like a Bud Light Lime, but better. Much better. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Doug? Uh, My friend Evan Purcell, who grew up in in Germany, is always on the hunt for a a local pilsner that that tastes like a pilsner. And the Chuckanut one up in Bellingham is one. And this one, even though it's been tainted by this cookie, I'm not really quite sure, (laughs) is is tasting pretty Pilsen Pilsner. It's pretty good. I'm liking it. Pilsener. 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 And it is, and it is (laughs) Freem. 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 Freem.
<laughs> Things are getting a little loopy yeah, here in the Moonyard yeah. Studio. <laughs> it's just the one beer, too. Okay. All right. So we were talking about with Sean about the David Brame case, which he covered at length for about two years. Um, so, Sean, a lot of the stories you've done, you get really – you're investigative reporters. So you get really, really involved, and these are months, years-long stories sometimes. Do you still have – did you keep – like, do you keep relationships with a lot of these people? Do they call you? Yes, uh, in some cases. The question is whether I answer the call. <laughs> uh, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. With, with, with certain people, uh, I will maintain contact. Um, and it, it's always interesting which ones – people still want to know about. Like, um, uh, we were just discussing stories off camera, but I don't think I mentioned this one. In about 2007, uh, my best friend uh, gets a condo in Renton, and um, bearing in mind that I'd known him since 1980, uh, and he gets a roommate, pulls the roommate off, adds in The Stranger. And the roommate comes in, you know, everything looks good. Um, the guy shares some of his geeky tendencies. Uh, he's Always sarcastic good. and funny, so it's working out. Uh, and then my friend Dave calls me and says, hey, um, you're an investigative reporter. Can you <laughs> do a background check on something for me? And I'm like, okay. Uh, and he's like, um, my roommate, I just had some mysterious bills show up on my credit card. Oh, really? Uh, for um, internet porn. Oh, oh, really? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the, 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 the short version of this is, um, and, and part of this happened within the span of about 36 hours, is I do some digging. I get the name uh, that my friend gives me for his roommate. I look it up, and it goes back to uh, Las Vegas. Um, but it's somehow messed up and the name attached to Las Vegas appears in a bankruptcy file. Uh, and the man in the bankruptcy file says, my roommate stole my identity, bought a car with my credit and fled the state. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Uh, uh, so I call up my friend and I'm like, I think you have a problem. Um, and, and this turns into this saga where I gradually realize that his roommate is a fugitive using a stolen name and a stolen identity wanted by police in Las Vegas. And, and he's pretending to be this other guy. And I also find that the roommate is working for what was then um, Singular Wireless. I remember Singular Wireless. He, he is a phone technician who helps people fix their phones after getting all of their personal information. Oh, wow. I'm like, oh, this is just the right job for, a, for an identity thief. And um, there's just this – I have to go through all these permutations. I find out that the Las Vegas cops really want this guy, but they aren't willing to pay for a um, – uh, a warrant of extradition that would pull him out of another state. Uh, and I call the Renton police and say, there's this guy here. He's an identity thief. He's a fugitive. He's working for the wireless phone company. He has access to people's personal information. Can you get him? And they're like, we can't get him if they won't extend the warrant. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and um, I call up Singular Wireless and a spokesperson there and say, look, I want to tell you something in confidence. You have an employee who's working under a fake name. 
and, and getting access to your customer's personal information. And they're like, oh, really? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very defensive. <laughs> they, you know, we can't discuss this, but they promptly terminate him and send him home to my friend. Oh, dear. Uh, and <laughs> Does he know at this point that you've blown this whole thing up for him? Uh, he doesn't, but he's beginning to get an inkling. And I, I finally figured out his real name and called his family in New Hampshire uh, and said, look, I'm trying to help my friend here. And I'm, you know, that's all I'm trying to do. Uh, and basically there was nothing that the official world could do. So I wound up um, going up to this condo in Renton myself with another friend of mine whose nickname was The Punisher. <laughs> Any relation to the Marvel comic? He weighs 350 pounds. Um, and he came up there with me for moral support. And we confronted the guy. Uh, and uh, he uh, split. Wow. And was later arrested in Snohomish County. Uh, and then sent back to New Hampshire and was arrested there. And I kept getting calls. I mean, this was a long digression, but do I still get calls? Uh, people kept calling me about that guy for years. He's here. He's there. He's here. He's there. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, the story we were discussing off camera was mm -hmm. uh, the Misty Copsy story, which uh, was a really lengthy series three parts called The Stolen Child. You can still see it online. That was a deep, deep dive. That one took me a year and I actually um, went to the hospital towards the end of it because uh, I was so deep down. Very shorthand. Um, it's about a 14-year-old girl named Misty Copsy who disappeared from the Puyallup Fair in 1992. It all was, comes back to the Puyallup Fair. It's true. <laughs> uh, uh, she was never seen again. Uh, she was initially presumed a runaway by uh, the Puyallup cops who kind of ignored signs that it was something worse than that. And um, because they didn't react swiftly in the beginning, they lost a bunch of opportunities to um, do the right thing and, and uh, investigate it as a possible abduction or homicide. And she's still never shown up. So, you know, it's pretty much a homicide. But my connection there was Misty's mother. Right. You still talked, or you recently spoke to her. I did, and mm -hmm. I still do. And uh, I still have little back and forth chats with her on Facebook. Uh, she's still, every time there's a um, report of remains, she asks me, is it her, is it her, is it her? And I go, I, I do my diligence and I check and I'm like, no, that's not it. And this mm -hmm. medical examiner says no. And that is, a, I mean, I'm not doing this story justice. It's long and involved and deep. And the mom, because the cops were not uh, taking her seriously at the time, became involved with this other guy, this amateur sleuth. I'm not going to name him here. Trust me, you don't want me to. Um, who felt he had his own theory uh, about the Green River Killer, who at that time had right. not been caught. Uh, and he believed he knew who it was and that it was an acquaintance of his uh, who he had spent decades assembling information about and compiling it every single detail of his suspect's life. And he convinced mom that his guy was her guy. Stolen Child was that was where I, I came up with that title mm. is that he took her loss and her grief uh, 
and appropriated it for himself to, you know, add fuel to the to his personal quest. Yeah, that's just gross. And he's would always seem to show up like right where little clues were being found. Mm-hmm. Uh, bear in mind, and you know, I don't know if he'll ever. I do not think he did it. Right. I do not think he did anything to anyone. Uh, I think he is. A voyeur? No, he he obsesses over over these things. But I believe, and I'm, and, and there's evidence at this point um, that he's never had any involvement in these things. Right. Um, he's just obsessive. Yeah. Just wants to be right. Right. And sometimes that's dangerous enough in itself. Get a lot of those gadflies when you work in journalism. Oh. Sorry, go ahead. Dick. He, I was just going to say he's sort of an insular conspiracy theorist, you know. <laughs> kind of, kind of. You know? Those um, people find an ear with journalists oh, often, or they try. I, yeah, I, have, I bet, I bet. I have four hundred recorded voicemails from that guy oh somewhere on my computer, and um, I, I know he he has long since stopped talking to me and refuses to talk to me, which was in some ways a blessing. Uh, but I know at one point when he, when, when the story came out and, and he didn't like the way it was done, uh, he left me a voicemail where he put his whole body into cursing at me. You could hear it. You could hear him going, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> Sounds exhausting. I'm like, man, yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> It's so nice to feel sane when you like hear about these people. You're like, God, I got it so good. I'm so normal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jeez. So uh, what are we – I mean, obviously we want to talk to you about your career at the News Tribune, but also kind of like a reporter's notebook dump in a way mm-hmm. since you're no longer there. Um, and at least for the moment, not working in Pierce County covering news, question mark? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's – I'm fishing. Right. I got I got bobbers in the water, <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm waiting for some bites. So we'll see what happens. I'm not retired. I'm not leaving journalism uh, just yet. Um, but uh, there's a little bit of waiting going on, and I'm I'm taking. This is my fifth week. Right. Of not working, and you know, there's a certain liberating quality to it. Where it's like, I can walk the dog at two o'clock. Fucking hey, that's great. You know? <laughs> or uh, I was talking to another friend yesterday where, where she was saying, geez, I feel tired and it's three o'clock. I think I'll just go take a nap. I can do that. Um, and she's running her own business. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I can. Uh, for at least the moment. Yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. So that's been great. So what does it feel like, we were kind of talking about this before we started recording, but what does it feel like stepping away, I feel like when I had this experience, at least when you're a journalist in this era and this very frenetic environment, you have a like a professional need to stay on top of everything and to be kind of analyzing and spitting out and this is good, this is bad. But when you step away from it, I just, I mean, I had to completely step away for a while. What is it, what's been your experience over the last five weeks of stepping away from the news cycle as a professional, I am. I'm, I'm still reading everything. I mean, I, I'm still on Twitter. I'm still, mm-hmm. you know, following the. But it's like, it's 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 like swimming to the shore of the river and just sitting on the bank, and 
going, wow. Um, there's almost a Stanley Kubrick kind of a quality to it in, in, in the sense of how I see it. If you've ever seen 2001, mm-hmm. there are these scenes where you're hearing dialogue and you gradually realize it's not about what they're saying. It's about just the fact that they're talking mm-hmm. and, and you don't need to hear it. Or, or it's like the old Charlie Brown cartoons where all the adults are like, wah, 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 wah. Uh, and, and watching news right now is sort of like that. Yeah. There's this Tower of Babel effect where everything is noise. Um, and I felt this before I stepped out of it and I felt the same need to stay abreast of things as you did. But uh, I've always thought that the urgency that news outlets create is artificial. Yeah. Um, and, and they're driven by, you have to know this, you have to know this. Wait until you see what we're talking about at five. It's, it's uh, Trump and Mueller again for, after, for the third hour we're talking about it. Um, or whatever it is. And I think it's important to remember that that urgency is created. You don't need to know everything. If you stepped away from, I, I came up with Trump Mueller, but, but if, if you stepped away from it for a couple of weeks and came back, what would be different? It'd still be there. It would. T- <laughs> it's not going away. Um, I'm more interested in little local things because mm. I've. I mean, that's always been my roots. So I saw a story by um, Allison Needles, who's still at the News Tribune, just saying, "Oh, there's a Safeway going up in Shaw Road and Pioneer and Puyallup." I'm like, "Oh, that's what that is." Oh, I wanted to know. That's right, nice. I'm right. glad I know that. Totally. You know, I have the same experience. It's like I can step away from the national stuff for like days and I come back and I'm like, oh, same shit, same players. Like, I don't care. Like, I'm going back to sleep now. But the local stuff, because you're not immersed in it, I'm like, wait, what's that building? What is that? Like, and like if Kate Martin were still at the News yes. Tribune, we would know exactly would know. what that building was and what they paid for it and what tax breaks they got and all that stuff. But yeah, I feel the same. Like, I need to, like, I'm, like, just, like, scouring the News Tribune to, <laughs> to know what's going on locally because I'm not covering it anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, you covered Click. Yeah. And Oh, I love Click. <laughs> the, you know, the, there has been a kind of resolution. Mm-hmm. And I saw that and I thought of you and I thought of Kate yeah. and, and, and other people. And, and I covered that a little. I'm like, wow, okay. So I guess this is what they're going to do. They're right. going to, you know, let Rainier connect, run it. And give them money. Uh, okay. And okay. I know. I'm glad I know that. <laughs> uh, well, the thing was, that, that was a sort of symbolic issue in my view where people were like, we want our public version because we hate Comcast. And I sympathize because I hate Comcast too. Okay. And th- they should have a competitor. And if you believe in the idea of public utilities, which I do, uh, then, okay, it's a good thing. Uh, and if you're going to have this, people wanted Tacoma to try to make it work. Uh, Marilyn Strickland, the former mayor, understood they wanted, mm-hmm. uh, they wanted to see you try. Right. And, you know, okay, she tried or they tried. Uh, but the forces going the other way kind of said, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so... All right, we'll we'll still own the fiber and the whatever, but we'll let this outfit run it, and they'll be the competitor to Comcast, and we'll see what happens. Right. 
So it's it's kind of nice. I mean, it's not uh, not nice is not the right word, but it's a resolution. It's it's satisfying in a way to come to a resolution, especially having covered it. Like I'm like, oh, okay, I can I can put this to bed for a minute. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. On my tombstone, click was resolved. That's- <laughs> yeah, totally. Jeez. That's funny. Um, what is it? Do you? I'm not sure if you've if you've had to have this experience yet, but because you're you're still planning to be a journalist again. Oh yeah. But when you step away from journalism, people ask you how you feel about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, I found that I don't have an answer. I I'm pretty neutral. Like I'm. I felt I was a reporter. I I see both sides. Like I can argue for both. Like I don't know if that's been your same experience, but oh yeah, mm. um, yeah. In well, a lot of things, anyway. Yeah, mm. people people still think of you as the you know you're the informed person on the block. Can you tell us about this? <laughs> yes, that's that's my entire function in life is to be the <laughs> conduit for your your information. It's, I don't have anything else to do. You know, <laughs> I don't have chess to play or a dog to walk. You know, fuck this. But um, sure, people ask things. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about Seattle is dying? What do you, you know? Oh, God. Uh, and, you know. Would that, you like to take a crack at that? Uh, I'm going to. Uh, this is dangerous turf. I, I, I guess what I think is that. There's a lot of people saying Eric Johnson didn't do journalism. He put the wrong face on this issue. Uh, or, or they get a little over the top and say, well, he's just doing the bidding of Sinclair. And I'm like, no, he's not. It's not that conspiratorial, he, folks. You know, he's, he's been there forever. Uh, he clearly laid out that he has personal um, experiences in his own family uh, about what's going on. And, and he, he said – whether you like it or not, that he thinks it's a, a, a lot about addiction mm-hmm. and not so much about, um, you know, people being forced out of their homes or their jobs, although that's a component. Yeah. My sense is that the crisis has mixed origins and it's not just one thing. And I think um, it, 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 it's revealed this schism in our community that is mirrors the national thing of, I want to view things a certain way. If you don't view them my way, then you're the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and not only that, you're, you're like evil. Yeah. You're not just, you don't just think differently than me. You're evil and wrong. Or you're a tool. Right. Um, I, I, I think people who don't, it's about people who don't feel safe. And you can argue about whether they don't feel, whether they should, whether they ought to be concerned about that. Um, but I think it's reasonable to say, okay, maybe your feeling of unease is not just because you're part of the tribe I don't like of uh, well off white people. Maybe you actually are a little scared when you, you know, see a lot of disorder and addiction and needles in the park and all these things. Um, and, and maybe we need to take that reaction among other reactions as viable. It doesn't mean that I would, I would say, you know, let's, let's just put them all in the back of a truck and ship them to McNeil <laughs> Island. You know, don't do that. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> I, I think the, the progressive 
community as a whole has a little bit of an orthodoxy problem where they're like, you know, how dare you complain about crime and disorder? Why don't you understand that it's your fault that this is happening? And it's like, well, you're not going to persuade people that way uh, if you tell them where they're not uh, you know, ad- ad- addicted or, or, you know, suffering from mental illness or living in the street, if you tell them it's your fault that these people are doing this, they're not going to be with you. Right. They're not going to help you solve the problem. So that's my reaction to that. Right. Like, I think, yeah, that's, that's a good, I mean, it would, my initial reaction to that whole thing was I'm obviously just disgusted by the way it was presented for sure. A hundred percent. And by the way uh individuals like facing these issues were presented um but we do hear a lot from ordinary everyday people who are literally scared about these issues so it's like yeah i just uh, it's it just comes back to the whole if you're if you're 99% with me but 1% not we don't agree yeah, yeah. and you can go choose you worm right yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right so give I have another question for you based on that. Okay. Um, so that's, I mean, definitely the trend in media. I mean, the from cable news to just the, the stuff that people choose to follow and react to on Facebook. Uh, it's very almost, I don't want to say tribal, but it's you pick and choose what you want to see and, yes. and what you believe in. And you want to be told what to think about something by people that you believe and inherently feel like are on your side. And local news has always historically been the place where facts are just facts. Like this happened at a city council meeting. Yes. <laughs> like, you can't dispute that. Everyone was there. All your neighbors were there. Um, do you see local news being able to hold on to that? Or because local news is really disintegrating and, and, Going away at the rate that it has been, are we going to get more of the news is just what I hear from someone I like and believe in in their opinions, if that makes sense? Yes, it does. Um, There has to be a commitment to the idea. uh, uh, I hate to say this back in the day, the way it used to be shit. (laughs) I I don't want to sound that way. Uh, But... The models for news have transformed and they've become driven by the wrong forces. So when we, you know, in this print to digital transition, something happened and certain news leaders said, oh, if we make everybody argue, um, they'll click more. Yeah. Uh, if we make them fight uh, and call each other Nazis and fascists or, or whatever it is, they're staying on our side and they're still reading and that's money. So we need to do that more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not pretending to have an answer. I just don't think that's it. I, yeah. I, you know, I don't think that's the way to do it. And I don't think... Um, I don't think that means we want just the facts, ma'am. We're going to do Edward Armour. I mean, you can still have thoughtful coverage. Yeah, and analysis. I think there's a good place. There's a place for that. Sure, there is. Mm-hmm. There should be. Yeah. Um, and I would expect it. Yeah. From any local news outlet, I would expect them not to just parrot uh, the company line. Um, one of the things that's happened with the decline of no- local news 
as reporters have gone away, uh, public information staffs have grown. Like me. For all, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a natural thing. These are the skills. So where we're going to okay, we're going to go. We're going to go work for the government agencies now, and uh, more power to people for getting jobs and surviving and all that. But doesn't it seem weird that when you have an industry, the news industry, that is obviously shrinking according to every available metric that you need more PR? Right. Um, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I saw, I think I saw you retweet something to that, or tweet something to that effect like a couple months ago. And that's when one take, I'm like, oh, that's my job. I need my job. Well, but, sure. but at the same time, I totally, it's absolutely a real thing. Well, I, I think the the tweet I had was something about, I, I was reacting to something that Pierce County was doing because I used to cover Pierce County. And they have a communication staff, and that mm-hmm. communication staff is professional. And I worked with those people, and I appreciated them. They did not lie to me. They were good. I like them. Uh, but you see them doing what we would think of as stories, news stories. Here's a video. Here's this. Here's that. Here's this program. Here's this. Oh, look at this. Uh, here's something you didn't know. Uh, the kinds of things that we would do. Mm-hmm. And th- the thing that struck me was, you know, if we were trying to do that story, maybe they would do it. Maybe they would, you know, help us. Like give you the information. Give you the information. But the ease of access, we'd have to fight. Yeah. And especially if we wanted to get into something deeper. I've seen, I've seen some stories where it's like, if I wanted to do that, I know what I've had. Because I tried to do it before and I got told no, or I had to wait months and months and months. And if they do it for themselves and say, here, public, we're presenting this to you um, through our filter. Not that there's there, – there's a concept called the adversary press where you, you, you don't question because you hate the government. Uh, but because it's your duty to question, mm-hmm. to be skeptical, even if you think they're telling you the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, the, the problem with the diminution of local news. And to fix it, <sighs> some things have to change. Nonprofit models are one way, like this setup, uh, where, where people are contributing. Um, yeah, be a member. Should be a member. I've done three of these things with Channel 253, I think, and it's fun. Uh, And and I think it's good. And I think more people should subscribe. So do it. Um, And I was not paid for that announcement. Uh, (laughs) I did get him a beer. Oh, that's true. I have a beer. Um, That's one way. But another broader thing is... Change your incentives. One thing I do truly think is evil is that um, the way social media has created this impulse machine that rewards our worst side. Here, this will piss you off. This will piss you off. This will piss you off. Click, 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 click. Oh, that pissed me off. I want to go. And, you know, you're there. You're locked in. Mm -hmm. That's not the natural order. And... News ought to be saying and has said, and I remember it, uh, you know, people saying, okay, we're not going to fall prey to just the tear each other apart impulse here. That's not the right way to do it. Let's rise above this and try to get at what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Get some nuance because there is nuance. There is nuance. 
So that's what local news has to – that's what national news has to do too. But that's what local news has to do. And to do that, you need people. You need people. Exactly. And there's not enough people. There's not enough people. They're barely just covering the – what they – you know, doing three stories a day, running – getting shot out of a cannon – just doing what they can. Uh, yeah, and you know, contrived for the SEO, contrived for the mm-hmm. you know. Here, here, here's a template for writing a headline that's the same as every other fucking headline written for the last six months. Uh, that's what you want. Uh, Lots of question marks. Yes. Ask them a question. Oh God, <laughs> I'm dying. Yes. Yeah. So, what do you think are some areas that aren't covered? Maybe weren't even covered in the heyday of local journalism that deserve more coverage. Um. It's hard to pick a subject there. I can think of something that – an idea that Randy McCarthy and I tossed around at one point called The Rest of Us um, that was just – I don't know if you ever had to do this. Uh, I had to do it early in my career where you would just go out into the into the street – and Into the masses. Talk to random people and say, "What do you think about this?" And 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 uh, you'd get you know six or nine of them take their picture, run their quotes. Man on the street. Newsday did a lot of that. Um, and I know people were scornful of that, and, and journalists would be like, "Well, that doesn't. They don't know anything about policy." <laughs> and like, well, okay, but these are the people you're talking to. Uh, these are the people you're trying to reach. You can't. You know, get so so smug and and turn into such a power junkie that you think they don't matter anymore. And a lot of times, um, people just want to be talked to, uh, want to be heard, uh, and the act of listening and the act of hearing is, is to me one of the cures to polarization. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of one of these effects of tribalism is we're all just going to go into our camps and stay there. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen enlightenment come from that. Uh, if you have a, a war of generations where um, you know the seniors are pissed off at the millennials and the millennials say the boomers ruined everything, and, and it's like, okay, you know, there's a story. Let's go have some millennials talk to some boomers. Let's get them all in a room. Yeah. And and say, okay, millennial, you tweeted that thing about how boomers ruined everything. You want to say it right here? Right. <laughs> um, I went to a, I think last year, I, I did a talk at a uh, senior center in Gig Harbor. And I was talking about some of these issues. And uh, there's a, you see stories about um, older people becoming sort of absorbed by Fox News and, and uh, not being able to come out and it ruining relationships. Do you remember the uh, uh, the, the, the SNL sketch featuring uh, Adele and Hello and the Thanksgiving? Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, it was just wonderful. <laughs> it was. So I, I was talking to these seniors and I said, you know, I have family members where it's been difficult to, uh, you know, cut through this noise and this politics and they all just almost – not literally rose up there. They all wanted to talk to me afterwards saying, can you tell me about that? Can you tell me about how we deal with this and how we talk about it? Because I know I, mm, there is a hunger mm-hmm. for, you know, crossing these barriers and these boundaries and, and getting people back into a space of talking to each other. I don't know how to do it, no. but 
Um, that would be one way I'd do it. That'd be one thing that I think local news could do is bridge these gaps, yeah. get people Put them in, a room. in the same spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's a great idea. It's a great idea for a series, definitely. Um, what do you – this is the last journalism question I'll ask you, then I want to ask you about your personal life. <sighs> uh, what do you wish you'd gotten to when you were at the News Tribune that you didn't quite get to? There's two stories. Um One of them is about a guy who um, we called the Greek, who was just sort of this remarkable con artist, lawyer, attorney, um, who who did all these insane things. Um, And but 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 that one is probably the second priority. The one I really wished I'd done that I never got around to involved a. uh, property owner here in Tacoma named Paul Post, um, who was kind of infamous in the early 2000s for having these very seedy houses. If you were to check the property list, you'd see that he owns like two dozen houses all around the downtown area, uh, especially where the hospitals and places are. And he rents to Poor people. Mm-hmm. Uh, people. Slumlord. Slumlord. People coming out of jail. Uh, he rents to them where other people won't. The city tried to um, basically code enforce him out of business by saying you're not repairing these houses and uh, they're not safe. He fought back um, and beat them in this lawsuit where uh, the court said you can't use code enforcement fines that continue to mount and mount and mount until the guy can't pay them mm-hmm. so he can't fix the things you say you want fixed. Um, that's part of the story. Uh, and he had been written about occasionally uh, by people. There's an old R.R. R. Anderson cartoon oh, yeah. that depicts him and calls him Stinkfinger. <laughs> um, and I have a story that I never got to, but I have all the information. Um, where Paul Post inadvertently killed a man. Um, Holy shit. One of his former tenants. Uh, this was in 2005. And the man was mentally ill, but he was brilliant. He could speak Aramaic. Um, he had a religious um, fixation. And he, at one point, uh, tore down these the, these displays of public art downtown that were ceremonial masks mm-hmm. uh, from various pagan religions. And he said they were, uh, you know, uh, anti-Christian. Um, and I kind of thought of him as um, the weeping prophet, you know. That's a good, uh, that's a good headline. Uh, yeah. Isn't it Isaiah? Is that the one? Um. And I, I knew a guy who had tried to help him get off the streets. Uh, and there was almost a, a Salieri-Mozart quality to this relationship where the guy was a, was a priest, a minister, and this uh, street person was holier than he was. Yeah, he thought God's light shined through him. Um, and so this guy became – he had at one point been a tenant of Paul Post's. And if you just look in the court files for Paul Post's name under civil, you'll just see this. You know, it's like the longest list you've ever seen. It's all evictions. 
um, for people who've, you know, mm-hmm. back rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he evicted this guy and the guy wanted his stuff and his stuff was what you would associate with someone pushing a shopping cart down the sidewalk. It was not very important stuff, but he wanted it. Uh, it included a phone bill. Uh, the, the, the man had called this um, televangelist, this blonde televangelist who he had clearly become obsessed with and gotten no answer, no answer, no answer. So this man broke into one of Paul Post's houses, uh, Paul's main house, the one where he actually lived. And um, Paul found him there in the dark, thinks it's a burglar. Mm. They struggle. Paul grabs a knife, stabs him. The man runs away. Wow. I've seen a picture of the knife. Jesus. It's closer to a machete. Uh, the man runs away, gets on his bicycle, which is given to him by this priest that I mentioned, and, and pedals away. And if this is just... So fascinating to me. I have the 911 tapes where Paul Post calls the cops and his dog's barking in the background. I think it was John. I think it was John. And John is on the um, near Wright Park when he's driving or pedaling. And he has it. He gets to a turn and he could go left. He's got a stab wound in his side and he's bleeding internally. All he has to do is turn left and coast into the the multi-care emergency room and instead he pedals up to his apartment like 10 blocks away you know walks up the stairs with his bike goes inside locks the door goes to the bathroom takes off his shirt looks at the wound in his side turns sideways and falls down and dies (laughs) and I've seen I've seen the crime scene photos. Uh, it was not, it was a justifiable death, basically, because it was a break-in. They never investigated it as a homicide. Um, and I never had the chance to call Paul Post about it or ask him. Um, I interviewed the priest and I interviewed cops who knew this man and how he walked around everywhere. Um, and, and the priest continued to have this sort of strange spiritual reaction to it. This guy killed my friend. I don't know what to think. I helped him. He killed my friend. Paul Post came to the guy's memorial service. Oh, wow. uh, so, and, and part of the reason the story never got done is because different editors wanted different things. Some of them wanted to be, let's do a stat story about all the people he rents to. And I'm like, I'm not uh, doing that. I've got this beautiful fucking narrative. Uh, about these two people and their collision with each other. It doesn't have to be about a bigger issue. It can just be this beautiful thing. And then other things got in the way. Mm. Uh, What a fucking story. Wow. You know, so. Wow. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, thank you. That's it. Jeremiah, yes. That wasn't my vast uh, biblical knowledge. That was me Googling. (laughs) That's what you were doing over there. I don't want to portray it as anything else. Right. (laughs) Fast right. I had the I had the quotes because that was his favorite, the guy's favorite um, book. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow. So. Wow. That's I mean, shit. That's a good one. I hope you get to that at some point. One of these days. So a uh, Twitter follower asked. Um, I know. So these are some of the facts I know about Sean Robinson. You hate IPAs. <laughs> you are married to Sue, who yeah. is an amazing person, an awesome horsewoman. 
Uh, you have a German Shepherd puppy. You play chess, and you're a huge Shakespeare fan. So one of the things that uh, one of our Twitter followers asked was, how did you get into chess, and kind of what is it like about chess? My dad taught me when I was a boy. Uh, I didn't really follow up then. I didn't play in school or anything. Uh, but when I got to college, I kind of got into it again, played a little bit, um, and then when I got out of college and started working, I st gradually started playing more and started collecting books, chess books. Um, I now have 800 chess books. What? <laughs> Where do oh, you put them? Uh, they're, they're in one particular area of my house. And I, I have a number of, um, I'm kind of interested in, uh, self-contained chess computers, electronic chess boards. I have a, a couple of dozen of those. Wow. Uh, and it, I, I, I like to measure their strength. And then, um, in the last couple of years, I, w I was doing all this by myself, and then I joined the Tacoma Chess Club and really started to become more interested in just studying and getting better. What I like about chess is it has a lot of um, similarities to the law. Mm. Um, it helped if you ever read a chess book, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that anybody would, but uh, a lot of the form will be it'll be a, a you know, a, games between great players. And the best books are those that are wh where the great player writes it himself. Uh, and the, the player will say, well, so-and-so uh, made this move with the idea of doing this. What he didn't know was that uh, Spassky played this in 1963 against so-and-so, which absolutely destroys this idea. I looked at this myself and found that both ideas are bad, and here's the answer. And it's a lot like law. Yeah. Um, where, you know, no, it's this precedent, Your Honor. Right. It's this precedent. No, this case law controls. No, it's this one. Well, you know. And it's all open to interpretation. Uh, yeah. And it, none of it's like, you can't nail nail all of it down. A lot of it is just analysis and interpretation. Yeah, it's interesting. Right. It, yeah, it's not fixed. So right. I, I enjoy that and I enjoy, there's a great quote from a writer I like who actually writes about baseball, not chess, but uh, his name's Bill James. And he says, chess is an argument about how chess should be played, <laughs> which I just love. Yeah. Um, so that accounts for part of my interest. And it's actually useful in journalism because you think about why people are doing what they're doing. I, I have a theater background, too, and that helps in a different way where you're thinking about people's motivations and why they take the steps they take. And both of those things kind of intrigue me. Right. So. And um, another reader question. What do you think the future of news is in Tacoma? Besides Channel 253. <laughs> Obviously. I think at the moment it's going to have to be grassroots. Um, I think there are ways to for that to happen, uh, for people to encourage it. This is one of them. There are others. Um, I think that there is a one idea of business is just find a need and fill the need, uh, and you know get paid in the process. 
the need is there. People want their news. People still want to know, you know, this region is bustling and full of stuff and full of news that people want to know about if we can muster the resources to tell them. Um, I still have my friends at the TNT and I'm not going to slag on them no, at all. No, of course. Um, they're doing what they can under very difficult circumstances. They are. And I, I guess I'd say to people who, I remember having this conversation with Nate Bowling a while back where he was mad about some stuff um, that they were doing there or, and, you know, saying, why can't we have this? Why can't we have that? And I'm like, you've got to direct your energy further up the food chain if you want them to do it. You can't, there's not a lot of power locally to make it be different. You've got to let people further up the food chain know, we want this, Mm -hmm. give it to us and give them the people. You know, um, when I left earlier this year, they still had not replaced your spot. Right, the city of Tacoma reporter. The city of Tacoma reporter. <laughs> the city of Tacoma reporter. For the Tacoma News Tribune. Not that it's it's not the TNT's fault. You know, fill the spot. Mm. Fill other spots. Fill Kate Martin's spot. Fill my spot if you want to. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. But up at higher levels, I, I think the model that doesn't work is get rid of everybody charge more for the product, make it harder to obtain, and don't give them any local information. I don't think that model is the way. Um, I think there's some juice in academic models. Um, you know, we have three or four institutions around here that can produce. There's UWT, there's PLU, there's UPS, there's Pierce College. Um, the, those places have potential, and they actually have a certain amount of resources. Yeah. Um, everybody wants to find the, uh, the you know, the, the billionaire who's like, I'll save you. you know, Here's a bunch of money. Hire 50 people by God. It's the, the Citizen Kane thing. Where, where is he? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that'd be great. Uh, but, you know, it's not like the Washington Post's and New York Times yeah. of the world. It, it's going to have to be done differently. Exactly how, I don't know. Uh, it's probably going to have to be online and not print. Um, although I love print. I, I love the touch and feel of the paper. It's actually a very efficient delivery system if you think about it. The ads don't, you know, blink at you and flash shit at you. you they just sit ads. there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, you can actually read the story Without looking at the ad first, mm-hmm. um, you know, those things are great about print, um, but high, high, high overhead mm-hmm. and maybe not the revenue to pull it off if you want the news part. It, it, it's a problem because this is this eternal struggle. The older people are your most loyal readers and they're the ones who like print the most and they're the ones who like, why can't you just bring me the paper that I paid for? And they're the ones paying the most for it. They are. Mm. Uh, So what can you do for them? Um, I think you have to take that into consideration. The future of news has to take those people into consideration, not just the 20-somethings. 
you got to get everybody. Right. So long answer to a short question. Right. Well, remains to be seen. Well, Sean, thank you so much for coming in. Very excited to see what you do next. And yeah, thanks for uh, spilling all the the hot info on the, the David Brame stuff. That was really interesting. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We'll see you again. Woo! Thanks so much for listening to Citizen Tacoma today. We are part of the Channel 253 network where you can also find these podcasts, Move to Tacoma, Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounders B-Team, and Taco Man. If you'd like to reach out to us about anything you heard on the show today, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic, please email me at candice.rude at gmail.com. That's Candice with an I, dot rude, R-U-U-D, at gmail.com. The Citizen Tacoma Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Candice Rude, and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. This is Channel 253.